We are now 18 months into the COVID-19 pandemic. Compared to the rest of the world, Australia has fared incredibly well. We have had fewer cases and deaths than most countries, fewer days in lockdown and one of the shortest recessions anywhere in the world. But as we all know, maintaining this zero COVID strategy hasn't been easy. Sydney is now experiencing a very large Delta outbreak. Victoria has just come out of its fifth lockdown. With only 14% of Australians fully vaccinated and vaccine supply still constrained, it can feel like there is no end in sight. Other countries like the UK and the US are beginning to reopen and go back to life as normal, but Australia is still shut off from the rest of the world. We know that we need to find a way out and we know that vaccines are that way out. They can carry us out of this mess to a world where lockdowns are no longer needed and COVID is not a major public health threat. Our new report on COVID and the race to 80 maps that path forward. I'm Tom Crowley, one of the authors of the report, and I'm here today with some of the other authors of the report, Will Mackey, Annika Stobart and Brendan Coates, to talk you through some of the key findings. It tackles the issue that is on everyone's lips. What vaccination level do we need to begin to open the international borders safely and how can we get there as quickly as possible? I'll start with the first part of those and I'll, I'll cut to you, Will. Can you tell us how do vaccines work to protect the community and prevent further lockdowns and how can that push us towards an answer of how many of them we need? I mean, vaccines are great news. They offer you protection against becoming infected and uh, protection against developing symptoms. If you're vaccinated and you become, um, you do, you're, in, you're the, uh, one of the unlucky ones who become infected, you're less likely to pass it on to others um, and you're less likely to end up in hospital or die from COVID if you, are, if you are vaccinated. The two vaccines that kind of we're looking at in Australia, where we have access to in Australia at the moment, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, both offer really, really strong protection. Uh, Pfizer offers around about 90%, well, 88% protection against uh, symptomatic infection. AstraZeneca is about 67%. That means the more the more people that are vaccinated, the, the less room the virus has to spread. And we can kind of slow down the spread of COVID, not needing to resort to um, the kind of restrictions that we saw in 2020. However, a complicating factor here is the Delta variant. So there's new new variants of COVID, the, the Delta variant that has that is much more transmissible. So it's maybe twice as transmissible as the original, the, the wild type um, strain of COVID that we were battling last year. There's this interaction between uh, vaccines and variants that we, 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 we're trying, to, we're kind of racing to understand. The more people that are vaccinated, the fewer chances the virus has to spread. Um, and that lowers the reproduction number. So the, the average number of people, one infected person will pass it on to. So with the Delta variant, that reproduction number in an unvaccinated society is maybe six. In a partially vaccinated society, that number decreases. So it goes down at 50%, it's maybe three. So we could, if we vaccinated half the population, um, we, we would have, a, 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 we're kind of battling a virus that has a rep of three, which is similar to what the wild type strain was. So similar to what we were looking at in 2020. If we vaccinate more and more people, we slowly bring the ref down uh, as we get to, if the original ref was uh, six, if we get to, 80%, well, the ref is maybe 1.25. And that's great, like that's really good news. That is still spread, so it still will spread, but it spreads much more slowly. And you need fewer restrictions, fewer interventions, um, fewer public health interventions to kind of control the spread. Once we get to about 90% coverage with the effectiveness, the, prote the protection against uh, infection that is offered by, by the vaccines, um, then the ref is one which means the virus no longer spreads. That's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for 80 uh, because then we can start to think about opening up 
we want to, you know, increase our vaccinations way, way past, you know, past that. I think that's a really important distinction to draw because I think it's, it's natural that people will fixate on on magic numbers and the title of our report is Race to 80 and we want that 80 to be kind of front and centre of the way that people are thinking about it. But but as you say, there is this distinction that every vaccine you administer brings you, you know, makes your life trying to contain COVID much and much easier. Um, but then we also do identify the point at which you can stop caring about COVID and start to live with it. And that number for us is 80. Now, Lots of people have their own numbers. Some people throw around 50s and 70s as that point at which we can stop trying to contain COVID. Can you explain to us why a level like that is inappropriate? We don't know how transmissible the Delta variant is. Um, it could be, you know, we're, so we were talking just before about a ref of six. That ref could be five or four. Um, and that's going to that's going to change how, how fast the virus is going to spread around Australia for a given level of vaccination. So if we vaccinate, say, 70% of people and the ref, that starting ref is four, then you, then you kind of can open up. It's not going to spread. However, if you only have 70% population-wide vaccination coverage uh, and, and the ref turns out to be something like six, uh, then you'll lose control. And you only have kind of one shot at this. If you open up and the virus uh, is, is going to spread throughout society quite freely, quite quickly, you hit a point where you have to either, you know, as more and more people get infected, you hit a point where you're going to have kind of too much demand on uh, the health system and ICU. Uh, and so you're going to either kind of overwhelm ICU or, or um, have to return back to lockdowns. And so 80 gives 80% total population, so the whole population are vaccinated, gives you this kind of protection against a higher than expected ref uh, or reproduction number for. The Delta variant. Thanks, Will. So that 80 and, and the, the analysis that sits behind us um, kind, kind of informs that recommendation that yes, life gets easier and easier as you get closer to 80, but 80 is the point at which a change can happen and we can we can change the way that we think about COVID and relax our stance. It's quite natural for the follow-up question that many people to ask will be, can we get to 80 at all? Um, what about all of these people who don't want a vaccine? Um, Annika, what do we have to say about that in the report? Yeah, we think that actually 80 is very achievable, in fact, um, and pretty quickly too. Um, if we uh, line up our ducks and the government actually um, resets its approach to this vaccine rollout and makes it really accessible, communicates well and has the supply there, uh, we can get to 80. Uh, you just need to look overseas and other countries are achieving that, um, especially like UK and Canada. They're pushing past 70% for the first dose and they, they haven't even finished their vaccination program. Children still aren't even eligible. So once you add them in, that will boost it up as well. Uh, a similar uh, country that has managed COVID similarly to Australia, like Singapore, is also pushing past 70% and they're not done yet. So we have these international examples showing that it's very possible. Uh, so it's no reason why Australia can't do the same. Um, even in the uh, England in particular, you have vaccination rates in people over 50, uh, pushing past 90%. People are accepting these vaccines. And if you look at the surveys in Australia, yes, you know, we have vaccine hesitancy. Um, but actually, if you look, look more closely at the data, uh, only about 10% of people are really against vaccination. That means that we could get up to 90%. And yes, there's on top of that 10%, there's a group that we've kind of called the, the movable middle who are unsure, they're willing to get vaccinated, uh, but 
might, might not want to get vaccinated straight away, feeling a bit uncertain about the effectiveness and safety of vaccines. Uh, but if, if we can target that group of people who, who are about, you know, 30% of people who are willing to get vaccinated but not straight away, we can actually hit this 90%. And that just requires the government to, to change its approach to how it's been managing the vaccination rollout to date. So wanting a vaccine is one thing, and I think, I think I certainly find it very reassuring that such a large proportion of Australians say that they do want one. Getting one, of course, is another question altogether. Um, and we know at the moment that um, the states are, are fighting over what seems like the, the scraps of vaccines that we have. Do we have enough to get there anytime soon? We absolutely do. Yeah, the rollout today has, has not gone very well. The government has stuffed up in a number of ways with um, not ordering enough uh, vaccines and... Um, having a slow rollout uh, model. But actually, we do have a lot of vaccines uh, streaming into Australia. We're, we're doing over 1 million uh, doses a week at the moment, and Pfizer is coming in from overseas. We've still got another 33 million doses of Pfizer to come before the end of the year, and there'll be 2 million a week available from October. So we have enough vaccines coming to vaccinate all, all Australians that want it. By the end of the year. So one of the things that you mentioned there, Anika, is, is people who are hesitant about vaccines for a variety of reasons. And I think it's fair to say that another one of the things that hasn't gone very well in the rollout so far is the way the government has communicated about vaccines to people and communicated about that uncertainty. How can it get better at that? The government needs to really change its communication strategy and we're slowly seeing that happen with some more communications and ads coming out. But we really need to have a communication strategy that reaches out to all different kinds of people with different messages. So firstly, they need to have messages that actually target the reason why people are hesitant or feeling a bit on the fence about vaccination. Uh, the, the most cited thing that people say they're concerned about is um, the safety and the side effects. So the government actually needs to address that head on and explain why the vaccines are safe and be transparent about it. Uh, and, and, and leverage different trusted voices in the community, experts, health professionals, uh, NGOs. We, there's lots of different voices that we can use. If we do it in a consistent way, we can really build that trust and confidence in the public about why vaccination is, is so important. Uh, and then we also um, yeah, need, need to reach to different communities using different methods. Younger people uh, receive messages different to, old, to older people. So it, it needs to have a multifaceted approach. Of course, um, vaccinating this many people is a very difficult logistical operation uh, as well as anything else. And we've already seen state um, states set up their own vaccination hubs in prominent locations and, and a couple of other kind of suggestions of innovative strategies to actually bring vaccines to people. Um, what do we recommend on that front? Yes, yeah, so the logistics um, model to date has, has used primarily GPs, which GPs are an important part of the rollout but they're not the only part of the rollout and it's also not the most flexible way to scale out a mass vaccination program across the whole population. So we're really recommending to have a much more diverse uh, vaccination strategy uh, using more of the states to really get vaccines to the people. States understand their communities on the ground very well and so can make it really accessible for people. The aim here is to ensure there is no uptake barrier for anyone, that it's really convenient for everyone to get vaccinated. And governments can do really innovative things to, to, to do that. We don't just need to have these state hubs, which are also really important. We need to be relying on um, many more pharmacies to get on board. We should have pop-up vaccination sites everywhere at workplaces, supermarkets, community centres, universities, schools, 
There could be 24-hour vaccination blitzes. We can give vouchers for people to get to the vaccination sites. We could even have a mobile van for vaccinations and do home visits. And a lot of the infrastructure already is there for vaccination. So we uh, the government is already rolling out mass vaccinations every year for flu. So we have infrastructure in place. We just need to leverage on that and expand it and be really creative about how, how the government goes about that. So hopefully then that combination of communications and convenience can, can push a lot of those people who are hesitating over the line and get us pretty close to where we need to go. Uh, but we also recommend some some stronger measures and, and some more innovative measures. Um, Brendan, uh, what do we do to make up that final mile towards 80 and, and above? Thanks, Tom. Well, what we're talking about here is really sharpening the incentives for people. So most people say they want to be vaccinated. As Annika said, 90% you know, say they want to get the vaccine. About a quarter of, of Australians do say, look, I'd like to get the vaccine, but maybe you know, not a straight away. I'll think about it for a bit. And what we're really trying to do is use a combination of you know, carrots and sticks to encourage people to take up that vaccine because it will have that benefit of supporting and protecting the community at large and helping us move beyond the kind of world that we're in today, particularly, you know, if you're in Sydney. And so one of those measures is the idea of a, a national lottery, so Vax Lotto, which essentially involves from the point when vaccines are available to everyone, uh, basically having a national lottery weekly uh, starting on Melbourne Cup Day. Look, we are Victorians after all, so starting in early Victoria, uh, sorry, early November, and basically having $10 million prize pools a week. You have 10 winners. Um, to be eligible for the lottery, you have to have had at least one dose. Now, that obviously includes people that are getting vaccinated at that point for, who, for whom this thing is an incentive. But also, you know, not to uh, disadvantage people that have already been vaccinated. If you've been vaccinated, you know, a couple of months ago, you're still in the pool. And the idea is it would give sort of a, a, an extra communications boost. It obviously has a really big benefit at the end um, and, you know, will help, you know, if you think of the economics of it, it helps counter the idea of there's some small but, you know, non-zero risk of of, down, of adverse reactions to the vaccine. Um, you know, the vaccines are safe, but, you know, this is another way of reassuring people with something on the other side that gives them, you know, some prospect of a really large benefit. So, you know, that is one of the things we would look to do, but... There are others as well. We would look to move beyond, you know, not just the carrots and probably into some more of those things that are, are forcing people or pushing people into taking the vaccine. So, you know, one of those is to essentially require people, um, you know, to be vaccinated if they want to engage in certain public activities. So, you know, this is the idea of domestic vaccine passports. So, you know, if you want to go to a big public event, like a sporting event or a music festival, if you want to potentially go um, out to a bar or a restaurant, if you're not vaccinated or if unless you have, you know, something to show that you can't be vaccinated for on health grounds, um, then, you know, we will exclude people from being able to do those things until we get that vaccine rate up as high as possible. And, you know, this is a coercive measure. Um, you've got to be very careful about how you do this, um, given that, you know, these things can be regressive if not everyone's had access to the vaccine. But we also have to think about on the other side of the ledger, if we don't get that vaccination rate up, we are talking about, you know, an extended period of time or a period of time where we're at risk of greater lockdown. So if, if this can bring forward the vaccine coverage by, you know, a couple of months, um, we know there's a non-zero probability that people will have to um, go back into lockdown, as we've all experienced over the course of COVID, particularly recently in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, then that, you know, potentially looks like something that's worth doing. And the other one that we do look at in the report um, is the idea of uh, mandatory vaccination for workers in, in high-risk settings. So essentially, if you're working in a setting like aged care, you know, in the hospital system, 
you know, in, in various other occupations and the people you're coming into contact with, say in disability care, um, can't get vaccinated or at very high risk of getting COVID themselves, uh, then you should, you know, it's reasonable to warrant that people will require um, to be vaccinated to work in those settings. We already do that to a degree with some occupations today. Um, and again, it's something that we've got to consider carefully, but if the alternative is, you know, slowing down the pace of the vaccine rollout and everyone ending up in lockdown, that's a trade-off that does seem like it's worth it. Thanks, Brendan. And I think that the, the sum total of all of that conversation about the vaccine rollout should be to create this kind of sense of both urgency and agency that kind of, it's, it's really, really important for us to get to this 80 level. And it's really, really important for us to, to take the steps that are within our power to get there as soon as possible. And our expectation on government should be very high. It is ambitious. Um, but but it needs to be ambitious. Now, I, I want to come back to the point that Will made earlier, which is about this idea that life gets a little bit easier before you reach that kind of 80% finish line, if you like. We've not recommended in the report specifically that there will be some date at which lockdowns end before 80 or that there will be any kind of formal policy change before then. But we do think life gets a lot easier. Can, can you help us, Brendan, to tease out the distinction between those two things and how we imagine life will look until we hit that 80 goal. So, you know, as Will said at the outset, as you vaccinate a larger share of the population than the REF, you know, the rate of spread of, of COVID in the community falls. And so what that means is as REF uh, falls, as we get approach that vaccination rate of 80%, uh, then, you know, if we do have outbreaks, um, you know, since we are continuing a strategy of trying to essentially not have COVID in the community, where we do have outbreaks, they'll be easy to quash. You know, you, you'll have a situation where someone's infectious and goes to the MCG in Melbourne or to the footy in Sydney, uh, and instead of there being 40 cases that blow up out of that, you might only have 10. Uh, and that makes it much easier for you to use the other tools in the, in the net uh, we're starting the arsenal to basically manage um, COVID potentially without always requiring lockdowns or if we're going to have lockdowns, because uh, we definitely think that's a tool that governments will need to keep on the table until we hit 80, uh, then you can potentially have much shorter lockdowns because, you know, you're going to, the virus will die out with those restrictions much faster than what it is particularly in Sydney at the moment. And because of that, there's also an incentive for the states themselves who, you know, as Annika said, have a lot of capability in running and experiencing running vaccine rollouts. And as we move to a world where supply is no longer a problem, there's a real incentive for states, if they want to move faster, to invest really heavily in the vaccine rollout. Because if a state gets to, say, 80% before the others, then they are potentially in a world where they can relax restrictions fairly safely, um, certainly have more less, much less lenient restrictions than other states, and not worry so much about you know COVID being present in their community. The borders can stay open for them. You know they don't have to worry about these things, and that's you know that would replace the kind of you know unfortunate competitive federalism we're seeing at the moment over who gets access to vaccines to a world where you're getting healthy competition between the states to get there first. You know it's a bit of a meme at this point, but. It is a race and, you know, once we get access to the vaccines, it becomes a race amongst the states themselves. Absolutely. And then picking up on, on that idea of the race, I think the last idea that I want to come to is this kind of the finish line at 80. And I use the finish line uh, deliberately because I think that the temptation for all of us all throughout COVID has been to create these little finishing lines for ourselves that give us something we can aim to and feel excited that we've got there. It was, it's the same when you're in a lockdown and you're aiming for, for zero or um, for whatever else you're aiming for. Uh, of course, we know that COVID doesn't give us those sorts of certainties and that it doesn't deliver neat endings. Um, so 80 is not the end of the story and it's not as if we can flick a switch and, and turn back to 2019. Uh, what happens, Brendan, when we get to 80? 
essentially, once we get to 80%, we can actually remove a lot of the much more onerous restrictions that, you know, have in, impinged upon the freedoms of Australians over the last 18 months. So subject hitting 80% vaccination rate overall across the population and 95% for the over 70s, you know, we're in a world where you can remove border restrictions for vaccinated Australians. So, you know, they can, they, as long as they come in with a vaccine, then are vaccinated, then, you know, you're not having the kind of restrictions and quarantine we have now. You know, across the population, we're not looking domestically at lockdowns. We're probably looking much more at, you know, what we call unobtrusive, um, you know, unobtrusive population-wide measures. So you might think about keeping masks in place on public transport um, to keep that ref below one. Uh, but you're in a world where you don't having to, you know, have lockdowns again. We have the passports in place. And it's important to mention that one of the reasons you do vaccine passports is it's not just a stick to help to force people to get, encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, it's also a way of restricting spread because if you're requiring vaccine passports in high risk settings, so, you know, if you need to have, um, if you go to a bar or a restaurant, you need to have or go to the footy um, and you need to have uh, vaccination, it means that if there is COVID, you're not going to get as many super spreader events. Um, and then we obviously keep the vaccination program going. And then once we hit 85%, um, which we think we should be able to do by March 2022 in the world where we do get vaccines for kids, otherwise maybe slightly later than that, then you can remove all border restrictions, international border restrictions for vaccinated people. You know, the you remove the vaccine passports potentially because you're no longer worried about the ref being above one. You know, you basically contingency plan for future, for, for future um, pandemics. But at that point, you know, the conversation has shifted. We are not worried about cases so much. Uh, you're much more woke focused on hospitalizations and deaths as we are for, you know, other diseases. And that's also a conversation that is going to have to take place in the national consciousness, that we move to a world where we are comfortable with COVID being in the community, but people need to be reassured that it's safe when that happens. And that's why we've set out the plan that we have. We think that will deliver that and that allows that conversation to take place, um, you know, when we hit 80%. I think that's a really good place to to wrap up our discussion of, of the path forward. And it's worth closing by acknowledging that it is a difficult path forward. Uh, COVID doesn't offer you easy choices, but Australia has done very, very well at making difficult choices that have delivered good results so far in the pandemic. We won round one, um, the, the deaths and the, the economic and the social costs, although they have been high, have been much lower than they've been anywhere else. And that was because uh, we went harder and, and, and we made harder decisions than, than many other governments did. Uh, we've been slow out of the blocks in the second round and slow out of the blocks to, to make vaccinations um, work for us, but they still can. And we are still in the rare position where we can choose our path out and we can choose to map a path out that keeps Australians safe, but that also gets us out of restrictions as soon as possible. It won't be easy. It will require concerted action from governments, but that is exactly what we should expect of them. Uh, so thank you, Brendan, Will and Annika for, for helping us to talk through that report. If you want to know more, you can check out the report. We'll also um, be writing op-eds and, and you can catch our coverage across the media over the course of the next couple of days. And we have a couple of events coming up in the next week, which you can find out on our website, bratton.edu.au. Thank you to Will, Annika and Brendan. And thank you to all of you for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>